Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. In today's episode, we are marking the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. As we approach this milestone, the heavy reality is setting in that we are likely facing a drawn-out and protracted conflict. Here in Washington, senior policymakers are grappling with this reality, as are leaders in Europe and in Moscow. And it was this reality, the specter of a protracted conflict, that provided the context in which the flurry of events this past week took place, including Putin's speech to Parliament, President Biden's speech in Warsaw, and of course, his trip to Kyiv. Both President Biden and President Putin sought to signal their resolve to stay in the conflict as long as it takes, a message intended to set expectations of their domestic publics, but also to convince each other that they will not back down. Over the next hour, we will dive into all of this and more in this special edition of Brussels Sprouts, in which you will hear a recording of a live CNAS event from Wednesday, February 22nd. The first half of the discussion examines the battlefield dynamics in Ukraine, including what we should expect and what Ukraine requires to restore its borders and sovereignty. The second part of our discussion pivots to the nature of ongoing Western support, including views from Europe and the United States. Here's our discussion. Really excited to welcome Jeff Edmonds, Rob Lee, and Shawshank Yoshi to the panel. Um, Jeff is joining us from the Center for Naval Analyses, and he's also a senior adjunct uh, fellow here at CNES. Rob Lee is a senior fellow in the Foreign Policy Research Institute Eurasia program, and he's a former Marine Infantry officer. I think we should note, too, that he is a, la a late sub um, for Mike Kaufman, who wasn't able to join us this morning, but we're equally excited to have you with us, Rob. So thanks for jumping in. And finally, we've got Shawshank Yoshi, who is The Economist's defense editor. And prior to joining The Economist, he was a senior research fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, or RUSI. All right, Jeff, maybe I would like to start with you. Um, and I want to ask you to set the stage for us. Um, how would you characterize where things stand on the battlefield in Ukraine? All right. Well, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Uh, great panel, too. Um, I would say on average, I would describe it as largely static with some small Russian gains. Um, believe it or not, the Russian offensive has probably actually been underway for a number of weeks now. I know there's some debate and some are waiting for some grand operation. But I think what you're seeing is the actual Russian offensives now from areas. And you can see this all along the line from areas north opposite Kupiansk. Uh, you've got some Russian activity, uh, you know, from Crimea, um, also in, in Begladar in the south. And so you really are seeing a push all along the line. They're not making a lot of gains. Um, that being said, I do think that the Russians will eventually control Bakhmut, but at a strategic cost in a certain sense. I mean, the, the amount of resources that they have poured into trying to take over Bakhmut is really out of proportion with how important Bakhmut is. I would say it's much more tactical than it is strategic. But in a certain sense, I think it comes from the fact that the Russians really need some kind of victory. Um, and I think that goes for both sides. I think there's a lot of pressure right now on both sides. You've heard a lot of talk about 2023 being decisive. I'm not sure it's going to be, but it's very clear that both sides think of it as fairly decisive. Um, it's, but I, I don't think we're going to see a, a large Russian uh, breakout or anything like that. I think that, you know, the first mobilization brought a, you know, a significant number of troops to the front, but they're filling places that were empty. So this isn't just an, an additional force that they're bringing to bear. And so I think you'd have to see other mo other mobilizations um, to really get enough forces to really try to, to, to push through in that sense. On the Ukrainian side, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what they're able to pull off as far as a as, as far as their own offensives go. Are they going to push to the south and try to create a salient uh, between you know the Russian homeland and Kyrgyzstan? Um, there's a lot of risk that comes with that. You end up having Russians on two sides of you. Maybe they can pull that off. It's an audacious move. Maybe can they actually bring about the concentration, surprise, and maintain tempo to, to pull off an operation like that? It's really kind of hard to see. But I, in general, don't see 2023 and the military operations as, as likely being very decisive. And so that brings up a bunch of other questions about Western support and another, a number of other issues that I'm sure the panel will bring up. 
Yeah, the, the protraction piece is really a key thing that I want to dig into. But Rob, really quickly to you, do you, do you think this is the Russian offensive that we've all been waiting for? Um, do you think that Russia has any additional capacity it will be able to kind of gin up to actually go on the offensive and take new territory? And I guess al- along those lines, too, is this idea of learning. You know, is it is it the case that Russia has seen its mistakes and its blunders of the past year and it's addressing those? Um, or uh, I guess that's the question is, you know, to what extent is this the offensive? And do you think they have the ability to generate that offensive capability? Sure. So I guess the first part, um, I agree with Jeff. I think we are seeing the main offensive. There may be more reserves that will come in the future. So, you know, it's, it's not as though it will end immediately. It may go on for, for a while, but it's going across the front. So it's happening in a number of areas, which means the actual concentration is, is a little less in that case. But one thing to, to be to kind of emphasize, we talk about Russia's offensive capability, they, they've built a very large force now, but a lot of it is mobilized soldiers. A lot of those units are not of very high quality. And we learned that kind of Russian motorized rifle units, kind of the backbone of the Russian ground forces, aren't very high quality for offensive operations, a lot of things. So when we talk about the assault forces that Russia has, it's actually a, a fairly small percentage of that force. So it's the Naval Infantry Brigades, it's VDV, airborne units. They're using Spetsnaz in a kind of assault role, which is really not their specialty. And then there's some of the elite Wagner units that are, that are using that role as well. And so that's a much smaller component. And when, the, when those units take losses, which we saw in Vuladar the, the earlier this month with the Naval Infantry Brigades, that really degrades their offensive capability very quickly. And so I think that's one of the, the big issues for Russia is that if they keep throwing elite units into the, into the grinder and they lose these elite units quickly, that that will basically um, prevent them from having much offensive capability going forward. And they don't have that really huge artillery advantage they used to have. They still have an advantage in, in quantity, but nothing like they had in the, in the spring and early summer when they made some gains in, in Luhansk um, um, earlier this year. In terms of um, kind of Russia as a learning organization, um, the evidence isn't very good for the Russian side, right? We, we keep seeing them uh, make similar mistakes, but I think it's important to, to note kind of why that's happening. So, you know, war is a very, uh, it's a very strong incentive to learn and adapt for more because the costs are so high and you get punished if you make mistakes. At the local level, right, you, Russian units have adapted. They do make, you know, adaptations. They've learned and they have developed. Um, I think the big problem with the Russian military is that the culture is not very conducive to, to as a learning organization. And it's very top down. It's not bottom up. And so when when there's developments at the bottom level, those do not make it to top level because generals are not necessarily open to, to learning about that. And you still see, you know, in Vuladar is a good example. A lot of people, I think, were talking about this example of the Russian military not learning. But I think what we saw is that at the tactical level, it wasn't necessarily tactical incompetence. It was just these are units that didn't have enough forces, that didn't have enough artillery support, didn't have enough engineering support. It was a very tough kind of place to advance. And when they're ordered to do so without the necessary uh, requirements, there's really not much you can do. And they, they tried and they failed. But I think that's more of a leadership failure than it is necessarily a tactical failure. And so I think it's kind of important to distinguish between those kind of different issues. Yeah, good. Yeah, excellent points. Um, Shawshank, um, Jeff brought up the specter of protraction. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Russia's ability to stay in the fight, especially from a defense industrial perspective. And I know you've kind of dug into the ammunition piece of this. I know that's a concern on both sides. But what is your sense that Russia can continue to produce what they need in order to stay in the fight? Yes, thanks very much for having me, Andreas. It's an honour to be on a panel alongside two others from whom I've learnt a lot over the last year. Um, manpower is part of this, and, and Rob has addressed that. Um, and I think defence industry is the other major piece. I think what people have to understand is that Russian defence industry is really struggling. You know, we had all these stories at the end of last year about Russian factories working triple shifts, um, Russia's ability to use a command style economy to try and direct resources uh, into defence in the way that we would struggle to do in Europe. Um, But in fact, what I'm seeing is a real struggle. So, for example, uh, Russian military requests for main battle tanks um, outstrip production capacity by 10 times as of now. Russian defense industry is missing its targets for UAVs, which have been absolutely fundamental to intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance in Ukraine. Um, On artillery, uh, we are seeing a fairly elevated uh, rate of fire in some provinces right now. I think Donetsk, Zaporizhia, Sumy provinces in particular. But that is disguising what I think is going to be a really serious ammunition crunch 
for the Russians. Uh, one official I spoke to in the last week said that they anticipate Russia's artillery ammunition situation is so serious that by the spring, they will be fighting with around 20% of what they had available in terms of the rate of fire at the end of 2022. And that's a, a really big problem in what has been an artillery-dominated contest. The same thing is true of precision-guided munitions. They are really struggling. I was told that Russia's air force um, used up roughly half of its stock of air-to-ground missiles in the first month of this campaign, the first month of this war. And what we're seeing um, is that this year, in 2023, Russia is likely to have around half as many PGMs um, available as it fired in all of last year. So I think what we have to be conscious of is that Russian, from my perspective, Russian firepower is going to approach a really serious point of crisis. And that gives an opportunity for Ukraine to press home its advantage. But that doesn't mean, of course, that Ukraine uh, can succeed in a counteroffensive. Russian weakness is one side of the equation. Ukrainian capacity is the other side. Yeah. Yeah, really excellent point. So, Jeff, the question to me then is what happens if Russia can't make progress on the battlefield? I mean, we've kind of just spelled out that maybe this is the much vaunted offensive and they're not really making much progress. Um, and so what happens? I mean, from Putin's perspective, from the Russian military's perspective, if we get through the next several months, and, and mind you, this is before the you know, Abrams and Leopards and other weapon systems that have been promised have even entered the battlefield, what happens over the next several months if Putin doesn't see any uh, progress in terms of uh, territory gained? So I think from the Russian perspective, they're pretty consistent in their belief that they can outlast the Ukrainians. Um, I've heard repeatedly them use the phrase that Ukraine's on life support from the West and all they have to do is outlast the West. Um, at whether or not that's true or not is, is obviously very debatable. But I think from their perspective, they really are in this for the long haul. I mean, they, they obviously are pushing now to get some kind of victory um, that he can sell domestically and to make some kind of gains. But I don't think the Russians themselves expect to make large gains this year, or at least in the first half of this year, and are really kind of waiting to reconstitute. I think it's, I think it's a, a given that they're going to have additional mobilizations. I'm hearing that from from people in Moscow, and so I think their role is to their goal is to really play this, you know, in a longer term, thinking that the West, one, the West will will stop supporting Ukraine. And you always hear um, Russians talk about U.S. domestic politics and how that's going to dramatically change things, although it probably will not. But I think from the Russian perspective, they they really think that that they can outlast us. Yeah, um, so I, just, I don't see a lot of like if there isn't progress made, I don't see that leading to some kind of dramatic change or instability in Russia or anything like that. I think that that this is kind of what they expect. Yep. I want to remind folks, if you do want to ask questions, please use the chat um, or the hashtags, and I can also weave some of those questions into our discussion. Um, but Rob, over to you. Um, where do you think we are in terms of the nuclear threat? And you know that there that kind of concern has ebbed and flowed over the course of this conflict. Um, there were reports this week that Russia may have failed in its launch or a test of its Sarmat missile. And certainly the big announcement in Putin's speech um, on Tuesday was, that he is suspending Russia's participation in the new start. So clearly this is part of his nuclear saber rattling, but where, you know, how, how would you assess um, the, the risk of nuclear escalation? And I don't know, just revisiting what it, what's behind it for Putin and why does he continue to, to rattle the saber in this way? Sure. So um, I'm, I'm not too much a nuclear uh, uh, expert, but, but I guess and just a, a general kind of statement about this is that, you know, earlier there was concerns in October, that there were kind of signs that Russia was kind of, you know, using rhetoric or people were concerned about some kind of nuclear escalation. And I thought it was really not very likely then. I think really basically the conditions are um, what if Ukraine is poised to take Crimea or what if Russian forces are in a state of collapse, right? Where Ukraine makes another breakthrough, you have a Kharkiv type situation, and it just seems Russia can't, you know, recover. Those are the conditions in which, you know, there is the, the, the possibility of Russia resorting to some kind of escalation, potentially nuclear weapons. I don't know what the what the percentage is. I still think it's a low risk because you know there, there are all sorts of issues with using nuclear weapons, tactical weapons. You know where to use them, how do you use them, all these other kind of things. Not clear it fixes the situation for Putin, but those are like the, I think the stakes in which 
Russia would feel they might have to might have to respond in some way. I think short of that, it's extremely unlikely. I don't think it's something we have to really worry about too much. Um, but in those conditions, you know, I, the short answer is I don't know. Um, you know, the Sarmat test it, um, for new weapon systems, it's, you know, they always have failures, right? You always have issues in testing. And, you know, we, we've seen ICBM and SLBM tests before that, that haven't been successful. So that's not, you know, not, not particularly new or big surprise. Um, so I, I don't have a, 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 you know, a very good answer for you there. I think there is, you know, some level risk here. And I think there's a greater risk of a nuclear escalation now than, you know, probably any time in decades. Um, but again, uh, you know, the conditions aren't, I think, until Crimea is under threat or Russian forces are, are you know, potentially collapsing. I don't think anything short of that, it, there's much of a threat, really. Andrea, can I add a small yeah, word? Please. Yeah. Um, I just I, I asked an official the other day, why why did they think Russia had not struck pure civilian targets in Kiev against uh, civilian decision making sites? That is, the, the majority of strikes have been against critical national infrastructure, including the electrical grid, the power grid. Um, there's been very little evidence of, of, of pure civilian strikes from, from in those kind that campaign of strikes. And the answer they gave me was they felt that there was real Russian concern about escalation, particularly given the number of foreign officials visiting Kiev at this point in time, at this stage of the campaign. Um, and I think that's really interesting because it tells us something about Russia's risk appetite, that they are still concerned about escalation. And if, if uh, President Putin believes that time is on his side, which according to the assessments I've heard he does, despite all of the setbacks, it again militates against major escalation because why would you escalate if time is on your side, barring the kind of extreme circumstances that Rob has described. So I think in some ways, Russia is more of a uh, risk averse actor than we perhaps uh, have assumed from some of the public rhetoric put out by the Kremlin to shape Western and particularly European perceptions of this. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Um, Jeff, what did you make of Russia's decision to suspend participation in New START and how significant is that? And, and what does it tell you about um, the, the, the fate of arms control moving forward? Yeah, I, I'm actually not surprised by the announcement. Even without, the, well, I think what a lot of people don't understand is even without the war, a new version of New START was actually going to be very difficult to pull off because of all of the other things the Russians would want to attach to a, a, a strategic treaty like that. Um, I think that that's, I don't, to me, it's not as big a deal, I think, as some some others. I mean, it's important, obviously, right? But I don't know that it means Russia is going to suddenly run off and start producing, um, you know, a tremendous number of ICBMs. It's very costly. It's not clear what the use for that would be. We're at the beginning of our modernization phase, which means we have the flexibility to respond to what the Russians are doing. And so I think, I mean, it's unfortunate. Obviously, the administration, and I, I agree with the administration, it's better for all of us if we stay in this treaty. But it doesn't really surprise me that the Russians want to leave it. Yeah, no, good points. Um, okay, getting back to the battlefield in Ukraine, and we've got a question from Jonathan, which is kind of in line with what I wanted to ask next. But Jonathan's asking, at what point can Ukraine use Western tanks and the infantry fighting vehicles to spearhead a counteroffensive? So maybe, Rob, to you, like if you're sitting in Kiev, what do you think your strategy is looking forward? Are you going to sit back and try to absorb this Russian offensive and then look for areas of vulnerability that you can exploit? Or how are you going, how are you thinking about this next phase of the conflict and how you might put to use uh, the new equipment that the West has promised? Sure. So, you know, there are a number of considerations, I think. And I think in Ukraine, one of them is political, right? One is that you want to show victories every so on. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have a kind of perception that things are going the wrong way. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's in Ukraine's interest to really try to achieve a real breakthrough, right? Like a Kharkiv type situation that they can exploit and really try and get more. Because if it's a if it's a kind of attritional, costly offensive like we see from the Russian side, that's really not what it's not in Ukraine's interest. It's, it's really not what they want. So it's really important, I think, this year, and U.S. officials have been, I think, been telling them this. That it's really important they make serious gains over the next few months, and that really leads them to, to think that hey, we should focus on um, achieving a kind of decisive breakthrough somewhere and put everything, all of our uh, you know, husband, all resources for that. Um, in terms of Western tanks and IFEs, I don't know what all of them are arriving. You know, I think the Abrams aren't going to get there until late this year, probably. Um, obviously, it's, it's coming from a variety of countries. It's different variants of the Leopards. I don't know when Ukraine will have them all in service. Um, but, you know, part of it, too, is that if, they, if Ukraine knows they're receiving more IFEs and tanks, they can be more aggressive with the tanks they have now. 
because they know they'll get backfilled. And so, you know, I think they might, I think they're setting up some new units that might be, you know, specifically trained on this new equipment because some of the, some of the, um, the equipment that the UK provided are, are in particular in, uh, a couple of new units that, that they're using. So they might do the same thing, but um, you know, ultimately it's going to be a you know, question of, of, you know, when is all this equipment arrive? When do they have time to, to train everyone on this? And, uh, you know, they might have an incentive to, to do an offensive earlier before then, and then hope this kind of new equipment and new brigades can kind of arrive later on and kind of maybe continue the operations going forward. But just real quick on that, I mean, I think I'm totally agree. And I think the real challenge is going to be uh, maintaining them. And I don't necessarily mean just the parts. I mean, the, it, I think it's easier to actually train someone to, I used to serve on tanks. It's actually easier to train someone to shoot a tank than it is to fix a tank. And so it's the mechanics and training them up on these different systems. Because this isn't something you can just swap out parts for the T-72 BM-3 or a Leopard or what have you. When you think about like the gunner's sight that sits inside of a tank, it's a very sophisticated piece of equipment. I do think it's the right move, though, because, I mean, if this does turn into a multi-year war, the Ukrainians will have time to train mechanics. They will have time to build up depots and, and things of that nature that can support that kind of force. One more question um, from the audience, Jeff, I'm going to go to you with this one, which is um, a question from Joseph. And he's asking about um, what you view as the chances that Ukraine can successfully uh, retake Crimea. I mean, I think that's obviously been such a kind of flashpoint, a sticking point um, between the United States and Ukraine, certainly within the alliance, different views on A, how viable is it and how advisable is it? Um, but on just on the like kind of sheer capabilities piece of that, what do you think? Great. Now I got to go on the record for that. But uh, <laughs> I think I think that's really far down the road. I mean, I think it's incredibly difficult to say. Um, I think you'd have to have Russian forces largely collapsing um, in order to achieve something like that. I do think, I mean, I'm all for Ukraine reclaiming all of its territory. Yeah, to Crimea, include Crimea. I do think there would be a conversation between, you know, Western leaders and Ukrainian leaders as to whether that was worth the escalation risk. Because I do think Crimea is qualitatively very different than Donbass. And so, I, I mean, I think the Russians, if, if you want to get into a dark escalatory space, uh, try invading Crimea. I'm not saying it shouldn't happen, but I think it was it is something we would definitely really need to, need to think through. Um, Shawshank, I don't know if you want to weigh in on that. I mean, and I guess part of the next question that I had too was what 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 does Ukraine require from the West in order to restore its borders? I mean, like in that, so that raises issues like attackums and other things that then could put targets in Crimea at risk. But kind of as you look about where Western support might be moving in the future. Uh, do you think attackums are in the cards? Do you think that the fighter jets are in the cards? Where I've obviously there's been this process of incrementalism and a slow ratcheting up of what the West has been willing to provide. And I wonder where you think that's headed. Well, given, first of all, um, uh, when you look at, when you talk to American and European officials who have been partnering closely with the Ukrainians, looking at them, watching them, very sympathetic to them, um, but but with a critical eye, I think there are still some concerns about Ukraine's um, Ukraine's uh, abilities in the close battle. You know, Kherson was was a success of the deep battle um, using HIMARS. Kharkiv was a very sui generis battle involving very depleted Russian lines. And I think there are still serious concerns about Ukraine's ability to conduct complex offensive operations at the level of, uh, above the level of brigade um, in the way that it might require if we're looking at broad front offensives in the South. So um, one of the things that may have to happen is a intensified pipeline of training. We are seeing the United States conduct combined arms training in Germany along with other partners, um, but at a relatively constrained level, not at the level that looks to me like it will yield very substantial high-level formations within a period of a couple of months. Um, so if we're thinking about major ambitious targets, we may be looking at later down the line and training will be absolutely critical to that. I think the second point to make is that um, whilst uh, combat aircraft, attackums, long-range uh, capabilities are all uh, very important and I think will will in, will be increasingly likely, although not in time for a spring offensive for, for obvious reasons, um, what Ukraine needs is still some of the least sexy stuff, which is to say artillery ammunition. Yeah. Um, I've said a lot about Russia's 
significantly constrained supply of artillery ammunition. The Ukrainian situation is not great. Um, we've seen public warnings in recent days from Jens Stoltenberg, from Joseph Borrell, the EU's foreign representative. And the Ukrainian rate of fire is also pretty limited. So I think, you know, if I was singling out a capability, um, you know, air defense would be, of course, very, very important. Uh, training is very, very important. The, the armed capabilities coming in. But I would say top of the list is still uh, sufficient shells. And that is by no means an easy task, given the defense industrial challenges that we are all facing. Yeah. Okay. We're almost at time and I want to go around the horde one more time, but you like the training piece really raises this interesting point about really like the divergence and how the two sides are executing the war with Ukraine relying much more on the technologies that the U.S. and West are providing and more of the training, whereas Russia seems to be relying more on, on sheer numbers. Um, but I want to just very quickly go around the horn, maybe if each of you takes a minute, and just to kind of give your, again, look into your crystal ball, make you go on the record, um, and kind of give your best assessment of where you think the battlefield is move, will move in the coming months. Kind of what, what's your prognosis? What's your assessment for what this looks like in the next two, three, six months? Jeff, you first. I think over the next six months, you're not going to see a lot of change. I think that there is a significant probability that uh, the Ukrainians do make that when they, if they are able to pull off an offensive, that they are able to gain territory. Um, I don't know what per, kind of percentage I would give that. Um, I wouldn't say likely, but I certainly possible. And so I wouldn't necessarily be surprised to see that. But other than that, I, I, I don't see 2023 at this point being super decisive in the sense that one side actually like loses large, large amount, amounts of territory. Yeah. Rob. Um, I think that it's possible Russia might make some gains in the next month or two um, while, while they keep kind of this, this cost to grind. I don't think we're going to see anything substantial, right? So they may take Bakhmut because they're, they're committing a lot of resources to it. They may take areas in the Crimea area. Um, I think Ukraine later in the year will retake some territory. I think they will have some success. As Jeff said, I don't know how much. And I'm not going to really predict that to any kind of great degree because um, it, it depends on so many variables. But one thing I'll, I'll say is that you know, a lot of Ukraine's success in the fall, and Kharkiv especially, was due to Russia um, uh, failed offensive in the Donbass in the spring, where they made some gains, but they took really heavy casualties, and they used up a lot of artillery ammunition, and they left themselves vulnerable um, by September for that Ukrainian counterattack. The same thing could be happening right now. They're doing these kind of costly offensives. Um, Gerasimov can be in charge. It seems as though he was put in charge to do more offensive operations. It seems Putin you know, still has very unrealistic expectations about what can be achieved. Uh, it's very possible Russia put themselves through bad decisions in a, in, a, in a tough position. Later on, it leaves them vulnerable to Ukrainian counterattacks. So I think it's open. But again, a lot of this depends on foreign support. As I said before, a lot of it depends on artillery ammunition availability. And those things are really hard to predict, you know, six months in the future, because who knows if China, North Korea, you know, NATO, how much they'll provide and how much they can provide. Yeah, good points. Um, Shawshank, last word of this panel is yours. I think if Ukraine can avoid committing its operational reserves in the course of the Donbass battles that are unfolding today, and if it can if it can avoid being sucked into more Bakhmuts in that period, uh, and if the Russians are not able to uh, um, uh, persuade the Chinese to offer significant military support, which I think would be a major factor. Under those circumstances, I'm a little bit more optimistic than Jeff. I think that the Ukrainians could make significant headway in the South, not all the way to February 24th, 2022 lines, but perhaps all the way to Melitopol, which would be a very significant uh, progress. If they don't, uh, then I think Jeff's prognosis of a more protracted conflict is a real issue because I think we will then see uh, uh, very quickly a vocal and powerful calls for Ukraine to negotiate. Uh, and I think that, that that'll be quite likely if we see a, a Ukrainian fizzle come the spring. Well, we couldn't have had a better segue to our second panel, which is going to dig into the kind of staying power and durability of Western support. So um, with that, Jeff, Rob and Shawshank, thanks so much for joining us. Um, and we'll continue this conversation soon, I'm sure. Okay, I'm really happy to welcome up our second panel, uh, and we're going to shift gears and dig into that question, which is the staying power of the West. And I'm very happy uh, to welcome to the discussion Steve Began, Kadri Leek, and Dr. Claudia Ma Major uh, to our discussion. 
Um, Steve Began is the Wiser International Policymaker in Residence with the Wiser Diplomacy Center at the University of Michigan's Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy. Uh, he has had over two decades of high-level government experience, most recently as the U.S. Deputy Secretary of State. Kadri uh, is a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, and Claudia is head of the International Security Division at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs in Berlin. Okay, Steve, so I just I want to pull this thread right into this panel and maybe start with you to hear your assessment, maybe just to reflect a little bit on the diplomacy that we've seen this week. It was a big week with uh, President Biden going to Kiev, having his uh, speech in Poland, the meeting with NATO. Um, what was your assessment of this week of diplomacy? But really, I want to hear your thoughts on the durability of U.S. support. Where are we? Thank you, Andrea, and good morning uh, to all of you. The um, It was a big week, but I'd really started a different place yesterday with Vladimir Putin's speech in Moscow to the Federation Council and to the State Duma. Um, a year later... He's still using the same stylized history, the same twisted logic, and, and, and also stating the same objectives as he did a year ago in this war. And I suppose he thinks that that, that demonstrates resolve and, and feeds this phenomenon that uh, the previous panel discussed, that, uh, that he, he can outweigh or outlast the West. But I think he's made a serious mistake here. Uh, it's, uh, it's certainly for his interests and for, for the interests that he's trying to advance. Um, there has been a change in Western policies during the course of this past year. If you go back a full year to this date last year, we were in the pre-war period, the immediate pre-war period, in which deterrence was really the policy of the West. Certainly it was the policy of the United States. We went from uh, deterrence to a, a policy of defense, to defend Ukraine, the first urgent steps of delivery of weapon systems. Remember when the javelins and the stingers were controversial deliveries? But we were uh, we were focused on the defense of Ukraine. We've now entered an entirely new phase. And, uh, and we are now in the defeating uh, defeating Russia. I, I think that that is absolutely uh, abundantly clear in the uh, various uh, speeches that were given this week. The, uh, the State of the Union address uh, just a couple weeks ago, the speeches in Munich. You know, we have leaders talking about different uh, types of weapons. We're talking about uh, the uh, tabling of war crimes prosecutions, which only happen in, 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 in the face in, in, with Russia's defeat. And we're also uh, seeing, um, seeing uh, the uh, U.S. and particularly U.S., but some European leaders talking and inching towards the last stage of this, which is victory for Ukraine. And I think we're getting very close to Western resolve forming entirely around the notion that, that Ukraine needs to be victorious in this war. I wanted to ask you about that. Do you think that Washington is there? I mean, kind of talking about a strategic defeat of Russia is one thing and calling for a Ukrainian victory is another. And I wonder what your sense is of whether or not that's a widely shared uh, goal and whether or not Washington would articulate it that way. You know, Friedrich Nietzsche uh, said that to forget one's purpose is the commonest form of stupidity. And I do think uh, that we are getting there, but we're not there yet. And Putin has not forgotten his purpose, and he's not stupid, but we need the same resolve, uh, and that resolve has to be around victory. You know, I, I think we're getting there, Andrea. I think it's been much, much too slow. Um, uh, we, we uh, for too long, we're playing for a tie, and playing for a tie is likely to produce defeat. We've been too minimalist. We've been uh, seeking first to preserve a sovereign Ukraine and later deliver a strategic uh, defeat of Putin. Um, I think we're getting there, Andrea, but it's taken us, uh, unfortunately, too long to get there. Yeah. Claudia, um, what what's the I mean, same questions really to you, um, but for your sense, your assessment of where Europe is. And then I also want to ask you to zoom in on Germany and Berlin, because there's clearly been tremendous change over the last year. Um, and so kind of how you would articulate and describe those changes and what really stands out to you the most. But maybe start big and, and then land in Berlin for a little bit. <laughs> Thank you. Um, if I look at the, at the European reaction, um, the, at the first glance, it's a really strong and unified reaction. And a reaction that I think has surprised many. Um, there was a, a really unified political condemnation of that war. 
uh, and the strong political unity we always we didn't always have in the past. Uh, we certainly didn't have after 2014. Um, the second uh, level of unity was on the economic level. So we had an unprecedented scale of sanctions being adopted. Um, and the third level of unity was on the military, um, with regards to weapons delivery and even, I would call it, creative use um, of European funds. For example, the European Union was able to use the peace facility to actually finance military support for Ukraine. So on those three levels, political, military, economic, the unity is really amazing. But, and this here comes my but, is if you look a little bit closer, um, actually that unity is not as big as it looks at the first glance. Um, and if I only look at the defense area, um, quick example, look at the budgets. Um, several countries have announced to increase the defense budgets considerably. The Baltic states, Poland, also Germany, but in many other European countries, not much, not, not much happened. And many countries still don't meet the 2% we agreed upon in NATO. So defense budget, the, the picture is not that unified. If you look at alliances, we have two countries, Finland and Sweden, fundamentally changing their policies and joining NATO. Denmark actually decided to go back to EU defense. But that's, this is, again, those northern and central and eastern European countries. And many other southern and western European countries, not much happened. If you look at military support for Ukraine, you have some countries like Poland who totally emptied their stocks of military equipment to support Ukraine. And the support and military equipment from the Baltic countries, Poland, Northern Europe, the Brits and, and Germany were really strong. But many other European countries, you don't have the same image. You could carry on with threat perception that change or not. In the end, we have the picture that those countries closer geographically closer to Ukraine and with a certain history with regard to Russia, who feel really existentially threatened, they have reacted strongly. But for many other European countries, it's not such a big concern. So I think that we have now a unity, but that unity is fragile in three dimensions. Over time, when we have more hardship, higher prices, a protected war, um, if we have political change, I mean, you have elections soon, we have elections in Europe, in the European Parliament, in the UK and in other countries coming up. <clears throat> and um, I think what I really worry about is once when we hopefully have a ceasefire or peace and the unifying threat is moving away, all the old differences in Europe might come up again. So we have a wonderful unity now, but I tend to think it's fragile and the longer this goes, the more fragile it's going to be. Um, if I look at Germany, I think Germany is a special case um, in that we really announced, or the Chancellor really announced a fundamental change. Um, three days after the war started, the Chancellor made a famous speech note called Zeitenwende, Changing Eras, where he actually said, we woke up in a different world. We cannot longer have security with Russia, but against Russia. We have a war, uh, including nuclear signaling, and we really feel threatened for the first time. Fundamental change in German defense uh, overall policy. And that requires major changes, which were unthinkable before, cutting the energy dependency from Russia, increasing the defense budget. They were never, Germany never planned to spend 2%. Now would the chancellor promised, and he repeated that in Munich last weekend, that we will spend 2%, a 100 billion special budget for defense and big procurement announcement like the F-35. That was a major change. And one year later on, they are really good elements. The defense budget is going up. The procurement decision for the F-35 has been taken. A new strategy is underway. So it sounds nice. And compared to what Germany used to do in the past, I would call it revolutionary. Germany is sending weapons to Ukraine, howitzers, main battle tanks, something which was unthinkable before the war started. So it, a lot has been done. But if you compare it to what Ukraine needs to win, if you compare it to what Germany promised, Germany wants to be a leader in Europe. And if you compare it to the security challenges ahead from Russia to China, it's too little. And this is, for me, the tragedy of the German Zeitenwende. Germany has come a long way. It's revolutionary change compared to what we used to do in the past. But it's too little compared to what Ukraine needs, what we need to do and our own ambition. Yeah, it, it will, and we'll come back to what we need to do moving forward. But Kadri, I want to pick up on what Claudia said. She talked about... Um, that, that the support and the cohesion is a little bit fragile. And I wonder, as you look forward into the next year or longer, um, what concerns you most about European unity and um, its staying power? What do you see as the kind of barriers or the challenges on the horizon 
um, that could fray or could weaken the resolve or the unity? What worries you the most? Well, um, one thing to ask uh, in the context of Europe is perception of nuclear threat. Uh, ECFR uh, did a study also into European unity. The findings were, as Claudia described, unity is surprisingly strong. Uh, but countries have different opinions about how big the nuclear threat really is. And one of our researchers, uh, ECFR research in one sovereign EU member states, said quite honestly that, listen, we are a small country. We actually have no clue. And I think that could be the case about many European countries. Uh, France is the only nuclear power in the EU. Uh, none of the rest have nuclear weapons, have nuclear culture at all. I mean, <clears throat> some of us have some think tanks that try to do some thinking about that. Germany has some, but but that's still a different thing. So my concern is that should I get there, that nuclear threat becomes even more of an issue than it already is, then European debate could become totally irrational and, and faith-based. Uh, you sometimes already see it. Some countries are more alarmist and, and, and it shows, whereas countries like Poland and the Baltic states, they just dismiss nuclear threat as Russia's bluff and said that no one should, uh, should pay attention to it. And that is, of course, something on which American leadership is is highly important because, you know, right now it's the U.S. that actually takes care of a nuclear conversation with Russia. And I think that's probably how it should be because U.S. is the country that Russia does take seriously on nuclear issues, um, which means that next American election will be highly important in, in this regard. And in general, I think actually European staying power might even be more dependent on the outcome of the US election than anything else that could happen on the battlefield. Um, right now, I would say that both Ukraine and Russia actually have helped European unity. I mean, Ukraine, by virtue of really being a very confident leader in its war effort, if Ukraine decides to resist, I mean, how can you not help? I mean, that it, it really, you don't have much choice there. But likewise, Russia, I mean, La Russia has rebuffed all diplomatic initiatives or has ridiculed them, basically made a farce out of them. And that is why the sort of peace-loving thing of the EU, and you could see that Germany and France tried to reach out to President Putin multiple times in the early months of the war, and that has died out because that has borne no fruit whatsoever. Yeah, excellent point, Steve. Um, both uh, Claudia and Kadri raised the U.S. election. But even before we get to 2024, you are, or I at least am hearing more stirrings that um, support in Congress or support amongst the U.S. American public may be tiring, may be waning slightly. And I wonder, again, just to come back to this question about how resolved is the American public? Obviously, President Biden and his speech in Munich is trying to make the case for Americans about why it's so important to stay the course. But where do you see U.S. public opinion and where do you see Congress uh, and where and, and how consequential do you think the, the presidential election in 2024 will be? So factually, we the last uh, vote we have that the Congress took on the issue of aid to Ukraine was in the uh, late year last year, still under Democratic control, but with this overwhelming level of support from both Republicans and Democrats in the Congress for an aid package that, when it was finished by the Congress, Congress exceeded the president's ambitions. That's not to say there aren't some voices in the Congress that are critical and pushing back, but at present, I think... Um, I think for those who are at Munich, uh, the, the comments of Senator McConnell uh, should be considered to be ring quite true for both the Republican-controlled Congress as well as the Republican Party and, and the American public uh, as well. Of course, this policy is a bipartisan policy. It's, it, it wins deep support in the center of the U.S. political spectrum. 
it's on the fringes that it that it's challenged and questioned at present. Will that will will opposition grow in time? You know, of course, the enthusiasm for the war and as the cost of the war uh, build, uh, this is inevitable in any war. Uh, certainly across the, uh, the time of my career, uh, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, you 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 pick your conflict. Uh, the um, you know there will be a fatigue at some point, and it will require resolve uh, by our political leaders in order to to sustain and maintain that political support and that public support. And that's really where the president, I think, has an important role to play. Um, we, uh, we uh, I think, failed to understand the consequences of a Russian invasion of Ukraine sufficiently. I think we would have been much more active in our efforts to deter uh, Russia's invasion if we if we fully comprehended the, the choices that it would present us with at a point like today. We would have we would have given them a lot more weapons in advance. We would have we would have done everything we could to deter Russia's invasion. We can't make that mistake a second time. We have to understand what the consequences of a Russian victory would be for us for the for the security of Central and Eastern Europe, for the security of Western Europe, for the deepening of a Russian Chinese axis, for the burden that will have to be borne by all of us to prepare, hopefully, to deter, but if not deter, to prevail in a future war that could be even be larger against the forces that have been unleashed in this conflict. That makes it imperative that the president frames this in terms that are both built around the objective of victory and and also that clearly state the stakes for the American people. I think that's a winning political argument, Andrea, here in the United States of America. I think the American people understand this. Our history demonstrates that sometimes we're slow to waken to these threats, but we understand, and we understand the role the United States plays and providing global leadership against those threats. Yeah, excellent points. And I think Kadri's point is relevant here that Putin is with the, all of the brutality and the atrocities that he's committed have really, like, as you said, wakened the American public. And I think that's something that Americans have felt that they can't stand for. And we just hope that that commitment continues. But Claudia, I want to ask you, I mean, obviously the United States and Europe have been maybe not in lockstep, but as close to it as possible um, in responding to the war and confronting Putin. But you could maybe say that um, it's we there's been a failure to bring along the rest of the world. And I'm thinking of the Indias and the South Africa and certainly China, uh, Saudi Arabia, all of these countries. What is, you know, why is it that you think that the United States and Europe have been so unsuccessful in their ability to bring along the rest of the world and to uh, strengthen the coalition um, that is confronting Putin and his ability to sustain the war? Um, <clears throat> I think my first my first reply would be a bit more nuanced. I mean, I, I actually tend to think we have three levels of unity. We have the transatlantic, we have the European, but then we have a kind of, I would call it Western, and West understood as buying in into a certain... A set of norms like uh, sovereignty, uh, human rights, and all that. And then you have countries like Japan, New Zealand, Australia coming in. Um, Japan con fundamentally changed its actually foreign security policy and its positioning towards Russia. So I think it's actually there is support from several countries which we didn't have in the past. So I, I would not be that that negative. But obviously, I totally um, see the point of the so-called global South not buying in. And I think that's to a certain extent our misreading of the situation. We tend to think that those countries sitting on the fence, at some point they need to decide where they want to sit. And I think we don't understand that for those countries sitting on the fence is a terribly comfortable situation because it's a moment of empowerment, of sovereignty, um, of actually enabling and, and actually empower them to, to have more space for decision-making because they actually can say, today we vote in this way and then in the other way, um, but you have to tell us what to do. So I think we have to change our approach to those countries and first recognize sitting on the fence for them is not a problem. They don't feel the need to fall on one side or the other because it empowers them. And the second is to think about a potentially constructive role those countries can play in the conflict. So not thinking that all black and white be with us or be against us, but what is a constructive role they can actually play? Don't they choose sides because they don't care, because they're pro-Russian? So I think we need to put a bit more thinking into what are the real reasons and what constructive role those countries can play. Because in the end, that's a kind of perspective on how international relations are going to be. 
I think President Biden said, we will make sure Russia will be a paria on the world scene. Russia is not a paria. So I think we should rather take that as a blueprint and think how we are going to organize international relations in the future um, where we have to think about a constructive role on fence sitters. And, and can I just add one thing that, you know, if this was a, if this was a math uh, contest, uh, Russia would have lost overwhelmingly. More than 140 uh, countries voted against Russia in the United Nations and will likely do so again in the coming weeks. Uh, you, you look at this from the perspective of Moscow. Uh, China is now deeply encroaching into Central Asia. Uh, Turkey is deeply encroaching into Azerbaijan and to some extent Georgia. Iran is deeply encroaching into Armenia. Russia, Russia has suffered a strategic defeat already. And just to add to that, what, what Claudia said, that Germany has abandoned pacifism. Scandinavian states have abandoned neutrality. Uh, the, um, the defense budgets of NATO are uh, increasing and the alliance has never been a more unified, certainly not in, in recent times. And a historic rapprochement between the people of Poland and Ukraine. And Ukraine now has a strong sense of national identity. This has been a strategic defeat for Putin. And, and having, uh, having a few neutrals in, among non-aligned states of the global south is hardly going to be uh, any uh, solution for his problems. I, I, I agree, but I'm sometimes wondering whether we are not a bit too too uh, optimistic or self-congratulationary, if I might say. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you look, you're right on the math thing, but many countries were criticized the consequences of the war, the rising energy prices, the problems with um, um, the grain uh, and corn delivery from Ukraine. So they complained about the consequences about, of the war, but they didn't complain and they didn't criticize the reasons of the war that Russia attacked Ukraine and broke international law. So for many countries, that didn't really matter. They ma mainly were concerned about the consequences. So I think we should not pride ourselves that they, we have, that Russia is, is so weak. I think many countries actually don't buy in into our narrative. And they consider this being a regional conflict about which they don't care much. They rather complain about double standards. You care about Ukraine, but you never cared about all those African wars. So I, I see your point, but I actually fear that this makes us far too optimistic. Um, and I think we should rather recognize that not many countries are buying into our understanding. They don't share our analysis and they don't share our, I think would say European kind of, kind of um, how shall I put it, this kind of how, how can Russia attack another country? They're like, yeah, that's happening in many other places all the time. So I would actually be a bit more cautious Although I like your enthusiasm, but I think it would be a bit more cautious. I, I agree. I mean, it, we have to avoid the self con, the, the, the self like bat, batting. But Padre, the, the elephant in the room is China, right? And Wang Yi uh, isn't met with um, Putin today. And I wonder what that relationship, the Russia-China relationship looks like from your perspective. I, I want you, I mean, I know it's hard to generalize what the European view is. But what are the kind of narratives around the Russia-China relationship? What does it look like from a European's perspective? I mean, we know that Wang Yi also did his tour around Europe and is trying very hard to convince European capitals that he's not back in Russia and its war in Ukraine. But I might see it differently. But I wonder how, how different European capitals are looking at that relationship. Well, I don't think any of us in Europe has big hopes that China will emerge as a peacemaker in, in that conflict. Um, I think China could uh, influence Russia's behavior, but that would take more than China is willing to invest. I mean, if, if, if China really stopped buying Russian gas and oil and providing Russia with technology. I mean, they could really squeeze Moscow in, in ways that would hurt, but I don't think it's in their interest. Uh, I, I think I mean, China doesn't want Russia to lose. It might not want Russia to win either. Um, and given the investment it's willing to make, I don't think that'll be enough to, to force Putin's hand to make peace. And looking at Putin, I don't think he's ready to lose. Uh, I, I think he's going strong. I think he will outlast the West. And yes, he's exactly courting what he calls world majority. And his thinking seems to be that everyone is tired of Western dominance, Western hegemony. 
uh, they actually want to get rid of it. Uh, and Western hegemony is, is fading anyway. That's a natural process. So he just needs to wait it out. I think he's too optimistic. I think the West is much more resilient than, uh, than he thinks we are. But I think we need to adapt. I think we need to understand that the hegemonic position the West enjoyed for the past um, 30 years or maybe slightly less, that's probably not going to last the same way. We, we need to adapt to the world that has more players in terms of demography and GDP. Other powers are catching up. And if we find our feet in that, you know, more multipolar world, then I think we will be fine and we will be able to bring more countries around the coalition to support also Ukraine. But that takes a shift in our mindset because, I mean, Claudia is exactly right. Right now, the rest of the world doesn't necessarily see that as that conflict. They don't even want to think about it in like Cold War terms, that they need to choose between the West and Russia. They think of themselves as independent players with their own agenda and their own interests. And the sooner we start seeing them that way, the better actually we will do also with coalition building. I think we are arriving back where we started, which is, again, this idea of protraction and kind of stealing ourselves for a prolonged war um, and working very hard to sustain um, the, our, our support for Ukraine. But if I can, uh, as a final question, ask each of you, um, if you like, uh, uh, what's on your wish list? Um, and Claude, you made this point earlier about, you know, even though Germany's moved so far, it's been a little, it's been too little. And so as we look into the second year of this war, what's on your wish list for where the transatlantic partnership will go in terms of either sustaining support for Ukraine or um, more effectively constricting and constraining Putin's ability to propagate the war. And I'll just go around the horn. So Steve, maybe just to start with you, one or two things on your wish list, what could the US and Europe do? Um, you know, I, I, I'll go back to something uh, that I uh, that we've discussed already a couple of times, uh, a, clear, a clear vision for victory in this conflict. If we have that, everything else is gonna be uh, easier to achieve. It, it's not gonna be easy to achieve but if we know what our objective is, it, at least we can then begin to to put together a, a meaningful plan to bring this war to a victorious end. Yeah, I agree. And Steve, you and I were in a, com a conversation recently about the confidence of the West, too, that we should start portraying the confidence that we should have in our ability to support Ukraine and see them win this war. And so that was one thing I would add is the the way that we talk about the war and what our objectives are, that we are able to signal and exude more confidence in our ability to achieve those objectives. Um, Kadri, your wish list. Well, actually, my biggest wish doesn't have to do with the West, but with Russia. Yeah. I would actually want to see Russia wake up because what Russia is doing is committing horrible crimes. I don't think that is something that Russia is, I don't know, genetically disposed to do or that's not the natural state of Russia. And the Russia that I know, and I have been following Russia for basically all my working life and longer, I mean, it, it has conscience. It has people who are capable of articulating it, capable of taking ethical positions. And right now, that is just not happening at all. That is strange, that is alien to me, and I don't think that's the natural state of Russia. So I want the Russia that I have known all my life to come back. Yeah, and it's a great point. And I think it's something that was reflected in President Biden's remarks in Warsaw too. There were a couple of lines where he addressed the Russian people um, to try to rebut Putin's uh, false narrative that this is somehow existential for Russia, that the West is out to take Russia down. And so President Biden took that on. And I, so I, I agree that as a, you know, what can we do to help the Russian people wake up and, and, and make different decisions? 
Okay, Claude, yes. final word is yours. <laughs> Thank you. I think Kadri's point is a really, really important one. So I just want to underline that. My personal wish list, three interrelated points. The first, make even clearer the case why Ukrainian victory is in our own interest. Make that very clear in all dimensions again. Second, um, a slow war is not less escalatory than a long war. Make that clear. And that's why I have a long-term systematic plan on how to support Ukraine military, financially and in humanitarian terms. So not this kind of ad hoc, now this and now that, but have a plan for the next one, two, three months and, and third point, yes. Make it very clear to our public that we are here in the long run. Even if we get to a ceasefire, we only have frozen the military conflict. We haven't addressed the political conflict. And we are far away from a peace because peace is more than not just war. It means actually addressing the root causes for conflict and address all those things from reparation, war crimes, sovereignty, security guarantees. So make the public clear that even after the ceasefire, things have fundamentally changed and are here to stay for a certain amount of time. I think this is really important so we don't fall into that trap of the unity going away because we thought, oof, this is over. So I think prepare the public much better and forge support and unity in a long-term perspective. Yeah. Well, this has been excellent. Thank you all uh, for joining us. Um, if we could do a round of applause for our panel virtually, we would do it. But um, thanks to the three of you. Thanks to our previous panel. And thanks to everyone for joining us. Um, please stay tuned for future events and tune into our Brussels Sprouts podcasts to hear this conversation again and for other conversations like it. Um, thanks again. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.